Hello and welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, where creative people share stories and we share them with you on this podcast. Today, a conversation with a man who's lived a fascinating life. You'll meet him in a moment. First, a quick reminder that my book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, is out, available, and people are actually buying it. It's incredible. And I'm so happy you're buying it because all proceeds, every penny, goes to benefit Boston Children's Hospital. It's a radio and personal memoir, and I appreciate you checking it out. Go to jordanrich.com, our newly retooled website, jordanrich.com, or go to amazon.com to order. As mentioned, a very interesting man joining us today, at times beset by almost insurmountable challenges. He's Arthur Ulian, successful businessman, philanthropist, historian, and author of a new book entitled Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Me, Growing Up Jewish in a Christian World. In 1951, Arthur became paralyzed following a bicycle accident and has since used his skills to advocate for increased federal funding of biomedical research. He's done so much for the world. And now this book. Very soon, the audio version of the book will be available, read by Douglas Sills, a Broadway actor nominated for a Tony Award for the Scarlet Pimpernel. And here's just a sample. Arthur DeUlian's new book reminds us of pastimes not truly past. When anti-Semitism was commonplace and young Jews had no place to hide from daily exposure to polite anti-Semitism and Christian denigration of the Jewish faith at the same prep schools. This was the time of the gentleman's agreement, when assimilation was encouraged and many young Jews found it easier to blend in rather than assert their particularity. It was the time of the melting pot in 1940s and 1950s America. Now it's a pleasure to welcome author, historian, and philanthropist Arthur Yulian. Arthur, thank you for joining us on Mike. I've read a lot of history about the Jewish people being Jewish myself, but I never read quite the history of anti-Semitism in such a profound and historic and and easy to understand way. So thank you for that, Arthur. I'm glad. That was the purpose. Well, it fulfilled the purpose. The book, again, as we said in the introduction, is called Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, dot, 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 and me growing up Jewish in a Christian world. I want to take us chronologically. Let's start with your your early days as a picture of you at Dexter School and uh, in the early days. What was Dexter School like for a young Jewish boy? Well, it was a bit of a shock because it didn't take long to figure out that I was the only Jew there. And the, the, the first thing that it really occurred was to realize that it was very exclusive and I was not able to participate in a lot of the things that they did. The first thing being that every Wednesday afternoon, they all, all disappeared wearing their tuxedos into a van and went someplace I had no idea where. And that was obviously disturbing. And where they went was rather easy to find out, but it took me a while. They went to Miss Hall's dancing school. Mm. And because she knew that since I was Jewish, I wouldn't be invited to the cotillions or the parties. So why bother teaching me how to do the foxtrot? (laughs) By the way, we're talking about students with names like Cabot, Lowell, Forbes, Uh, right? And and, and just to say right up front, none of these kids were anti-Semitic toward me at Mm. all. Right. The only thing was um, they just excluded me from anything beyond the school. And this was in the, in the, what, the fifties for the most part? Yeah. Okay. Different, different time. It's 60, 70 years ago. So it's a long time ago. I'm going to back up a little bit in your, your upbringing. And you talk a lot about your parents, particularly your mother, what her 
intent for you and for her own image was? Want to explain that? Yeah, she was a extreme uh, person trying to assimilate mm-hmm. and sent me to what she thought were exclusive elite schools where exclusive and elite meant I was the only Jew in both the schools. Because from Dexter, I went on to Milton Academy, where I was also the only <laughs> Jew. And and I actually kept it secret for all the years. I never told, I never even mentioned the word Jew, never told anyone I was Jewish. But I figured out much later that I was probably the only person who believed that I was secret. And they all mm. knew the second I walked in. But at Milton, what happened was that they had actually a real church right at the end of the campus on a little hill. Right. By the way, Milton is not like this today. Right. They have a Jewish student union. They're very integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I sat in chapel, I, I realized that I was the brunt of most of the services. And, you know, as a young kid, you tend to, you know, like all Jews do, trying to make make something funny out of out of things and that's kind of Jewish humor and I would fantasize you know when the minister up there on his pulpit would start looking at me saying um, you have made my temple into a den, den of thieves and the blood is on your hands that's right out of the New Testament mm. and I had these fantasies that I would jump up from my pew and run out waving my hands, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. Mm. You know, it's like like, uh, one of those movie things. Well, I got to tell you, uh, there's a lot of laughter. I I found it very funny and amusing from time to time, despite the seriousness of the subject, because you reflect on your various visits to the psychiatrists, the shrinks. I kept thinking of a Woody Allen movie (laughs) yeah, because of the the Jewish guilt. And I love the way you intersperse that. I'm, I'm sure it's all based on real stuff, but it was very funny. What's interesting, too, is most of the anti-Semitic feeling and fervor seemed to come from words in text and from the teachings that up until recently were pretty much considered uh, routine among many Catholics and many Christians. What propelled you to study this? Was it your own personal experiences to study the true history? Yeah, it was because none of it, none of those accusations seemed possible. I mean, we didn't have money-changing temple the tables in Temple Israel. And, uh, and I wouldn't know how it was possible that our people were able to kill their Lord. That made no sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I had wished that I had been able to say something to mm-hmm. the minister or to the teachers in, 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 in the classrooms who would make the same accusations because all the stuff that's in the Gospels and the myths end up in literature and in art and in music, and they were all wrong. And so I needed to know why, what was going on. And so I spent 30 years uh, researching everything in between an accident and the whole thing. We'll talk about your life experience, which is so critical to your story. And this is a true memoir uh, about a life well lived. But you know, you mentioned literature, Chaucer. Uh, obviously, the uh, Merchant of Venice comes to mind from Shakespeare and many other examples. But throughout, I would say, uh, the Constantine era, right up until the 1900s, 
the, the Zion pamphlet in the 1900s, all of these things are written down, and people tend to believe what's written down, don't they? Yeah. There was an op-ed the other day in the New York Times about myths and how they remain, and bizarre myths, like there's no coronavirus around, mm. uh-uh, and we're turning the corner, and people just kind of believe them. And, and particularly when they're, uh, when they're um, uh, strengthened by everything that people see around them, the Christians who see the Last Supper, what that means, you know, somebody hanging from a cross, uh, the massacre of little children, and they see that in art and in stained glass, they believe it, and they should, or they would. Do you yeah. talk about one of the most pervasive, horrible legends, if you will, of the murder of children and the use of their blood for Jewish matzah, which is used during Passover. And sadly, that is still, as far as I know, taught in some of the very, very uh, reactionary schools in some parts of the Arab world. Where did that whole myth develop and how? Can you recall? Yeah, it, um, it comes from the massacre of the innocents. And this occurs right at the beginning, at Christmas time. It says that as soon as Herod heard that the king of the Jews is, was born, and he then wanted to get rid of all the children all over Judea because he didn't want to be put out because he was the king. Problem was that he died 10 years prior to the birth mm. of Christ. <laughs> and it's a little hard to do that. Also, no one, no one ever heard about it. There are no historians that mention it. And that's where it comes from. You talk a lot about the Gospels and about the uh, disciples and the fact that, say, Saul, a.k.a. Paul, yeah. people of that ilk who wrote about Jesus so many decades after his death, uh, really perpetrated this this scapegoatism, if you will, uh, that the Jews were behind not only that, but all kinds of things. Talk a little bit about the research you did, because it's so encouraging to see how truth can overrun any of these things. Jews were pilloried and massacred, I know. I mean, I've studied enough and took a lot of horrible hits for something they never did, for things they never did. We were innocent. We should be in the Innocence Project. Mm. It, uh, you know, I don't know whether it was one's education or whatever, but you begin to start going deeper and deeper into all of these issues. You begin to ask why, mm. what was going on, what was happening in the Roman Empire during that time. And you bring in kind of your own experiences. So I studied economics. I, I did it both academically and, and practically when we were lobbying in Washington. And I was interested in the economics of the Roman Empire. Mm. And I just found that uh, none of these things ever could occur. Well, uh, it's interesting how you point out that the, the Jews have always been accused of being money-hungry and rich and powerful. It's quite the opposite throughout history, uh, including the Middle Ages. Jews had very little. Occasionally in places like Italy, they, they rose above certain levels. But for the most part, they were the destitute, the poor. Yeah, yeah they, were, they were locked up in ghettos for 300 years. How are they going to get money? to loan out even. Mm. And when we traveled around in Italy, uh, and a lot of this stuff I knew, 
So I, would, I went over to, we went up to Florence and went into the Medici palaces. Mm. And I asked the, the, um, the guide, um, and I said to him, so what did this person do for a living? It's a pretty big house here. And no one obviously had ever asked him a question like that. And he kind of fumbled around and eventually he said, oh, the Medici's were one of our merchant bankers. So I wanted to say, but I didn't. Hmm. Oh, Jewish. I didn't realize we got so <laughs> wealthy. I thought I would start a pogrom right there. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. We're talking about the book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and me, Growing Up Jewish in a Christian World. Arthur Yulian, two L's, U-L-L-I-A-N is my wonderful guest. And uh, it's a not only a work of history, but it's a personal memoir that we'll get more into in a bit. But I kept reading about you in school, particularly before you got to college, and college became a better and an interesting experience. But sitting in a classroom and being the only one not to sort of buy into this because they're talking about you. It's almost as though everyone in the world is aiming at you at that one point. That can really that can really do a number on your ego and your psyche. Oh my God. I mean it it was over and over and over again. I mean as I describe in this book here, when we're talking about Merchant of Venice and Shylock, mm. I was Shylock only disguised in a blue blazer. And I knew I mean, it's one thing to do it in the chapel where it's filled with other people, but in a little classroom we're sitting around a, a, an oblong table, mm. everybody was looking at me. I mean, there I was. I want your pound of flesh. Give it to me right now. Right. So I researched that. Through the book, you outline some of the, the players in terms of the anti-Semitic movements, and certain popes were high on the list. Share with me, if you will, a little bit about the popes who brought about the Crusades, because the Crusades— lead to the Inquisition, and lead to a lot of other things. Just share a little bit about that background. Okay, yeah. It started in 1029 or whatever, you know, but in that period, the First Crusade. And uh, and what, how these Crusades occur is they were preached by, by priests mm-hmm. uh, to go out and go and get into Jerusalem and get rid of the Muslims. Right. But then the priest said, say, but on the way, you have the worst people of all, those Jews, and you need to kill them too. And then they they quote from various parts of what Jesus has to say. You know, they're my enemy and everything. Else. All of this, all of those things kind of coming out of Constantine. Mm. So the Crusades, and there were four of them, basically wiped out one after the other of all the Jews in Europe. Incredible, uh, yeah. And uh, there was even a children's crusade for kids under the age of 16, and they were vicious. That uh, that reminded me so much of, say, the Hitler Youth Movement or something. Yeah. It had that same eerie... I, I never heard of that, by the way. I learned a lot in the book, and I never heard heard of that. Uh, they, they, there are pictures in the in there about hanging um, animals that were and devil-looking people who were who were the the the, the myths were that they were uh, part of the devil because the Gospel of John said exactly that mm. and so they're hanging 
you know, uh, people with funny faces and tails like the devil, mm-hmm. and they were Jews. Arthur, uh, you're familiar, of course, with the expression tikkun olam. Uh, we know you are, yes. which is to do for the world, give back, be helpful, and support your neighbor, and do what you can to make the world a better place. So now it's a perfect segue. Your life changed in a big way, and this is a very important part of the story. Um, you've written this book, which is part history, and that's part your own story. Now, when you were 51 years old, you were just taking a bike ride and suffered a very uh, life-changing accident. Tell my audience and me just a bit more about that. Well, I was just taking my normal uh, bicycle route just to stay healthy. Hmm. And on a, I had one of those racing bikes with all the helmets and everything else on. And going down a hill, I started to go quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and I, my wheel got caught in a crack on the road, and I went over the handlebars. And I ended up uh, in a wheelchair with a, with a serious spinal cord injury. I mean, I can move my arms, and I can propel myself in a, in a chair. And then someone said to me, even though I didn't believe in that kind of stuff, is that everything happens for a reason. Mm. And, uh, and I thought, you know, given this situation, maybe we need to increase research money for the NIH. And, and what is really remarkable is that we put together, and I had, I had a lot of experience from business, mm-hmm. you know, lobbying uh, and doing stuff like that. And I knew a lot of senators and congressmen because they were all interested when we would build stuff in their area because it was a it was a feather in their hat to bring money mm-hmm. to, to a community. So I, I started to put together uh, with the help of, of, of uh, Leslie Kenny, who helped me edit this thing, uh, an enormous group of people, uh, including Crystal Reeve and, right. and the AAMC uh, bio, um, every single disease group there is, and we got Congress to double the NIH. Which, by the way, uh, you talk about achievements in Congress to get anything to happen. It's like moving a, a boulder up a hill. And it was Newt Gingrich who said to you, if I'm quoting right, something like, uh, I can't necessarily uh, do it now, but I can do it soon, or I can do it later, or I can give you this much. He actually came through, and it, that the Congress came through at that point. They did. It was it was terrific. Because what they... What they needed um, was to prove that medical research actually is good for the economy. Mm. And since I had studied economics, I hooked up with a bunch of real practicing academic economists. And we wrote all kinds of articles that appeared in the proceedings of the National Academy. By the way, you went to the London School of Economics. No, yeah. no uh, shortchanging yourself there. That's pretty yeah. impressive. And it was fabulous. <laughs> I can Actually, imagine. Speaking of that, speaking of London School of Economics, um, the book, um, if you're an author at LSE, they post it on the webpage. Oh. So ahead of the, the Department of kind of interreligious faith, a person who was actually a priest of the Church of England uh, contacted us. And uh, I'm going to actually talk to him next week because the, the Church of England came came out with this terrific report saying that what we are preaching from the Gospels has contributed to anti-Semitism. That is an amazing 
amazing apology. I want to come back to that, but I do want to really credit you um, as the, pardon the expression, squeaky wheelchair gets the uh, the grease. But you really did champion for so many people uh, medical money that went to research that is making a, a difference. And just before we come back to the main theme of the book, which is anti-Semitism and how it's evolving, Christopher Reeve, uh, Superman, it was poetic that Superman would be the one who would be forcing, facing this kind of challenge. But what was he like to, to get to know? He was terrific. I mean, he was really like a Superman. He only spoke through a, through a trach, mm. and he had a breathing machine, and it was difficult for him. But he was so ambitious, and because he was a superstar, uh, we got a lot of attention. Mm. Um, we would talk a lot on the telephone. We came, we came to visit him early. Mm. He told me this when we walked into his room. There was a big poster from the astronauts saying, "Everything is possible," and that's kind of what our our push was. And then he told me this wonderful story about his roommate. Um, Robin Williams. Robin, Robin Williams, yeah, yeah at, uh, at Juilliard, who came in all disguised as a Russian doctor. <laughs> he said, I want to examine you right now. He had all this kind of weird stuff holding it up. And then they cried and yeah. laughed. That was a great story. I, I, I read over that very slowly because I wanted to savor it. Absolutely. Just to return to the theme of, of our prior chat, um, the fact that in the last 50 years, even 60 years, we've finally seen, first of all, the post-World War II experience of Israel, the first state of its kind in, in centuries, and a, a change, a, an actual cyclical change in the church doctrine from the highest levels. That must, in retrospect, feel pretty good to especially somebody like you who's been through it. Yeah, it's just a wonderful thing. That is, is happening. And it's also happening in the Catholic Church as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they are trying to look for the historical Jesus. And uh, what uh, changed it all uh, is really Constantine. Because he wanted to make a add a religion to the power of an empire. And, uh, and, and kind of changed what some of the gospels were saying so they would satisfy his ambition it it, it it really does point out where where power is out of control bad things generally happen uh, and and it happens to innocent people uh, in this case jews yeah. across the centuries so often just the innocents it's amazing i mean the the statistic that there are no more jews today than there were in the first century hmm. is pretty incredible. And yet there's a resilience that you um, personify, a resilience in spirit and in humor. I started telling you, I was chuckling, and people would say, what are you laughing at? It's a book about pogroms and slaughters and tyrants. But throughout history, Jews have had a chance to laugh and, and use laughter. And it seems to me, I don't know you personally except meeting you now, but it seems to me that you've relied on this for your own, for your own yeah. mental health. Am I right? Yeah, I had to do that. I mean, I, I had these crazy things, you know, that I would write in the school newspaper in Melton, Jews find 
Christ guilty. <laughs> Headline breaking news. Oh my God. Well, you, you you survived a whole lot and you're still going strong after quite a life and it's cataloged beautifully in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and me growing up Jewish in a Christian world. Uh, I met you through uh, an on Zoom event in which many, many people, several hundred people it seems, tuned in and I said, I've got to have you on my podcast. But what has been the reaction outside of that to the books so far? I know it's early. What what have you heard from? Well, a lot of people have said that it's written well and that they never understood Jewish history mm-hmm. before. And, and Jews just don't even know our own history, yes. nor do they, nor have they ever read or listened to the Gospels. And, uh, and that's kind of the reaction. One that God, I never knew all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And because who reads, who, I mean, history books are tough. You know, 1832, this happened, 1922. You know, nobody likes that. So, you know, I cushioned it all into a rather humorous life taking uh, event. So, by the way, just one more note uh, the pictures, many of them of art through the centuries, are uh, very important because. When you refer to a piece of art, it's nice to see the, the the graph of it so that we can sort of contextualize what you're talking about. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, that was that was interesting. I mean, I, I had read so many different things um, and, and gotten exposed to so much stuff. Mm. I mean, just the Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, the book is not exactly the Da Vinci Code, but <laughs> he's in there. Uh, and it's this subtle... Um, dog whistle. I'll tell you what, what really floored me was the Rudyard Kipling stuff. Oh, yeah. Who, who's always been a favorite writer of mine. I did not know that many of his writings were tinged with this tr- traditional, quote-unquote, anti-Semitic flavor. It's very yeah. surprising. In the early 1900s. Yeah. Yeah, all I liked from, I mean, I read all those books, too. Yeah. You know, the, the man who would be king and uh, um, and I'm the Captain Courageous and all of those things. Mm. But how, well, anti-Semitism has been, I mean, it's like driven into their heads. And, uh, you know, the, like just the, the whole concept of I got, I got Jewed. Jewed me, he Jewed me down, even right. though the person wasn't Jewish. But let's say our blessings that things are changing. And I think your book is one very important step in making that change possible. So God bless you for doing it and uh, continued success and happiness. And uh, by the way, uh, there's a skating rink named Yulian in Milton or Braintree or Quincy. Is that any connection to you? We're all related, but I must say, you know, know that <laughs> rink. It's just what I was thinking about having you on. I, I, I passed by and I said, oh, my God, the Yulian, is, is he that powerful that he can create not only buildings and and law in Congress, but skating rinks. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, it yeah. was <laughs> it delightful to meet you, sir. And um, you've done uh, you've done us a real service by joining us today. We really appreciate it. Well, I want to thank you. Terrific to have you do this. I appreciate that a lot. And awfully nice to meet you on the Zoom. It is kind of nice, isn't it? We can actually say hello. You can see that I'm in yeah. an actual studio. I can see behind you that library of books, very impressive, <laughs> and uh, and uh, see your smiling face. So you take care and uh, all the best. Thank you very much, Jordan. 
Once again, the book is available everywhere. Please check it out. It's called Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Me Growing Up Jewish in a Christian World. It's an amazing story from a pretty incredible guy, Arthur Yulian. I want to say thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, as always, Ken Carberry at Chart Productions, and always, of course, to you for listening and for telling friends about the podcast. Appreciate it. Don't forget to find out about my new book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio. You can visit jordanrich.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N, jordanrich.com. All proceeds from the sale of the book will benefit Boston Children's Hospital. Until next time, this is Jordan saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.